0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times.
1: Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by the Spectator's political editor Katie Balls and a special guest, which is Red Box editor Patrick McGuire from The Times. Patrick, um, it's been a busy week in Westminster despite the recess and there's been the news of Sturgeon resignation and what's happening with Jeremy Corbyn. So I want to ask you as an opening question, what's been the best bit of news for Keir Starmer this week? It's a really, really interesting question. I think in terms of the arithmetic of the next election, which
0: is something that constantly preoccupies both Keir Starmer and the most important man in his office, Morgan McSweeney, who is his most influential aide, they are constantly warning the Shadow Cabinet not to be complacent, despite their polling lead stretching 28 in the re- most recent YouGov poll for the Times. Their worry is, over time it'll be whittled away. And if it gets down to 10 or less, you're in hung parliament territory and who knows what's going to happen. Any complacency creeps in, they get drawn into culture wars, that poll diminishes and so too is their chances of winning a majority. But what's been transformative is not necessarily Jeremy Corbyn being given the boot because they're pretty confident that they have drawn a line under that period. That's really about putting a lid on it. What, has changed the arithmetic in their view, what could change the arithmetic, is the departure of Nicola Sturgeon, who is so predominant in Scottish politics they just never saw a way of landing a glove on her. And they now think, and even the likes of, you know, SNP diehards who hate the Labour Party, like Jim Sillars, who I spoke to earlier today, both the SNP and Labour recognise that this is a a once-in-a-generation opportunity for the Labour Party to make inroads. Outside of Edinburgh, in the centre of Scotland, um, they're very confident that they... Can, if they resource this fight properly, can go from, say, 10 target seats in Scotland to 20 and also draw the sting out that classic Tory attack, i.e. you're going to be in the pocket of this forceful personality in Scotland, be it Alex Salmond or Nicola Sturgeon. Who knows who'll replace them and will that attack? Can you imagine Keir Starmer and Kate Forbes's? Top pocket. It's an interesting question.
2: I'd just say on, on the point of you know, which seats they're aiming for, it's interesting for me as an East Eastlovian girl. Mm. Uh, parents are there today, North Berwick. Uh, we have Douglas Alexander is now the Labour candidate. Cool. So yeah. you have, quite, I suppose, a former Labour heavy hitter, yeah. which I think is a statement of intent. But you can see quite careful selection in terms of, I think generally with the Labour candidates across the UK, you can see that they're trying to distribute candidates not just across the country, making sure there was a mix of backgrounds and all of those, but particularly in Scotland, um, there's quite a statement of intent. So the two that struck out to me the most probably are Douglas Alexander for East Lovian, which I think... If you think I think it's one of the most pro-union seats in the whole of Scotland. But every time, so that it splits between Tories and Labour often, which is whenever the SNP do get in. And of course, now we are one of the two Alpha MPs in the country through Kelly McCaskill. And then also Talker Crichton, who is the Daily Record former political editor, who is going for his home constituency, again currently in SNP hold. But you can see quite a clever move there, which is, you know, if, if the local candidate as someone who has gone to Lewis and out to Hebrides a few times before, and had to say, oh, come along, come along, and then before you know everyone's just saying hi to you because you're with him. Um, if, if he can't get it, I am a little bit sceptical as I think could. I think in the past
1: elections, under Richard Leonard, particularly a Scottish Labour leader, there was some talk about having you know a second independence referendum, perhaps as a sort of weakening, and there was some Scottish Labour wanting to reopen that question. Patrick, if if Labour want to win over some of those sort of floating voters, maybe a bit sympathetic to, you know, independence, will Labour have a specific policy offering for them? Will they be talking about things like Scottish independence or will it be actually thinking about cost of living issues? Well, look, Scotland, uh, Scottish Labour have been very, very conscious, and you speak to people in the Labour leadership about
0: this, that they have been seen as the party, the middle of the road status quo party. Mm. On the scottish constitution right they were neither the full-throated unionism of the scottish tories nor independence and that's nye bevan's old maxim about what happens to people who stay in the middle of the road in politics they get run down and boy did scottish labor i think there was a, an awareness in the labor party at the top of the labor party they needed to say something that wasn't the status quo and wasn't independence hence why gordon brown was commissioned to do his devolution report i mean There are lots of people within Keir Starmer's inner circle who don't want to adopt that hook, line and sinker. But his proposal, basically, of something approaching Devo Max for Scotland and a federal UK is a recognition that they have to have something else to say on the doorstep in Scotland. But they would much rather fight that election and are confident that actually, UK-wide, if they are seen as credible players on the pitch in all four parts of the UK, they can have one message that cuts through on the cost of living, on the economy, and also they have the devolution element that they can say on the doorsteps in Scotland. But also don't forget that the Scottish Labour Party have a degree of autonomy in all of this. Anna Sawa will want to fight his own distinctive campaign. You saw that with his response to the gender reforms in Scotland. He backed them, despite a great deal of squeamishness, down here in Westminster. So it'll be very interesting to see how, how that unfolds
1: too. But look, Anna Sawa polls very well. He's trusted by the leadership it's all to play for. Yeah, and you make an interesting point about you know Labour being stuck in the middle with, between these two sides, with the you know, Scottish Tories being very full-throated Unionist and the being on the other side. Perhaps with Nicola Sturgeon's departure, might we see a kind of you know, lessening of that and a sort of softening in degree of actually not focusing away from constitutional issues and this kind of one issue to other things like cost of living? Well,
0: look, look what Stephen Flynn, the Scottish uh, nationalist leader in Westminster, said this morning. He said they needed to stop talking about independence so much and stop... You know, there's a a difference between being the independence party and the referendum party. The danger for the SNP is in recent years they've been the party of let's have a referendum as opposed to sketching out a compelling vision for independence. You know, as much as Nicola Sturgeon has tried to do this over the past year or so, the big questions about currency uh, and people's pensions and the economy haven't really been nailed. You know, she launched a series of white papers on that. So, I mean, it suits the SNP too, given they've... Taught themselves into a blind alley on a second referendum that they have no legitimate means of securing, no legitimate constitutional means of securing, it would suit them to fight on the cost of living too, I think.
1: So Nicola Sturgeon is one political figure who's looking to be exiting the stage. The other, of course, is Jeremy Corbyn. And, you know, he will not be standing as a Labour candidate in the next election. What do you think the thinking of this is, Katie? Because, you know, there are still some reports of one of the Guardian today suggesting that he has a, a large personal following. Is there some danger perhaps that he could stand and win?
2: Well, I was about to say to your question, it's not clear to me yet that Jeremy Corbyn has stood out of politics. Keir Starmer still has Jeremy Corbyn to deal with. Jeremy Corbyn clearly did not enjoy Keir Starmer's uh, op-ed, also his comments, uh, which came on Wednesday morning. I think it was a problem for Keir Starmer that, Ultimately, Nicola Sturgeon eclipsed him. So you have a situation where yes, it's good in the long run for Keir Starmer and his party that you now have Nicola Sturgeon leaving. But what was clearly quite a well-staged and well-planned event, uh, just as Keir Starmer has done so many times in the past to pick a fight for his own side to show how he's changed, mm-hmm. it got a little bit of coverage in the morning, and then it was really pushed to the back of the news agenda. And I think they clearly thought during recess that could that could have actually run for a few days. Then you had. Jeremy Jeremy Corbyn effectively um, putting out a statement where he said, you know, it's a flagrant attack on the democratic rights of Islington North Labour Party members. It's up to them not party to decide who their candidate should be. So you can see this rattling away. I don't think it's a fight that will particularly bother those around Keir Starmer in the sense. It's a fight they're looking to have. Mm. But I suppose in terms of where this goes for Keir Starmer, I think it's interesting the Tories constantly want to bring up the fact that uh, Keir Starmer served in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. Now, lots of people say, and I think we have said on this podcast, the two of us too, it's a very uninventive attack. We've heard it many times. But I do wonder if it's something that could slowly chip away, because you see now Keir Starmer being attacked by the left of his party for not having any principles if you see what he said during the Labour leadership campaign and also now the rights of the Tory party attacking him for now taking this bold stance on anti-Semitism and obviously he served on Jeremy Corbyn for a long time and never resigned and therefore why I can see why they want to keep doing this because it's worked for them very well in the past and also I think Keir Starmer is sincere on this it's not completely without risk I think to have Jeremy Corbyn you know in picture even if it's in a way where Keir Starmer's, um attacking Jeremy Corbyn because you can just point back to a period where and you heard at Prime Minister's questions where you know Rishi Sunit said well I quit under Boris Johnson, almost making Boris Johnson the Tory um, Jeremy Corbyn, which did not land well with many MPs, but trying to do that. And at the time, people laughed at it. But the point is, in politics, it really depends on the political weather behind you. So if you get to a point where uh, Rishi Sunak looks a bit stronger and Keir Starmer looks a bit weaker, these things can start to have more impact.
0: The problem is, and and shadow cabinet ministers, i get frustrated with Keir Starmer, those who were there at the time, those who were talking to him at the time, because there were countless occasions on which Keir Starmer confided in sympathetic colleagues from his wing of the party during the Corbyn period. He was saying, look, I'm finding this really difficult. I would like to quit. And the message they said to him again and again was, Keir, you can't quit. Because you need to stay in the shadow cabinet and fight the next leadership election. From this point, he does have a story to tell. You know, he stayed in the Labour Party in order to save it, as his wing of the party would put it. As one shadow cabinet minister put it to me yesterday, you can't win a game if you're not on the pitch. Whether Keir Starmer is prepared to make that argument, you know, with his chest, as it were, is another question. I don't think he's he's quite there yet. But I mean, I think they're certainly alive to. The possibility that the Tories could land this line, that Keir Starmer says one thing, does another, be it to the country or the Labour membership. But I think Kate is absolutely right. They're not particularly worried about it right now because the Tories are in such a such a bind in the doldrums that they think the public just don't want to
1: hear it and don't think it's at all credible. You mentioned the shadow cabinet there, Patrick, and a few weeks ago you suggested there was a possibility of a Labour reshuffle. How likely is that? I mean, you know, Sinek reshuffled his own ministries a week or so ago. Do you think that's likely on the horizon? Well, look, what I will say is that there's nothing like a report of a shadow
0: cabinet reshuffle in The Times for uh, instilling discipline in The he Shadow Cabinet. It's more
2: effective in The Times than The Spectator. Uh, for shadow cabinet, maybe, but not for the the cabinet. Shadow,
0: well, look, the cabinet, if they read it in The Spectator, would be terrified. I think, uh, I think you know, look, we are now the newspaper of choice for a lot of uh, Keir Starmer op-eds, so there is a degree of credibility of The Times' is reporting <laughs> that, you know, obviously Keir Starmer has given many good interviews he to this. He quite likes The Telegraph, though. It's very newspaper. He does, he does. But anyway, look, I think... We've reported this. It's going to happen at some point this year. That is the sort of settled view of people around Keir Starmer, that they can have a reshuffle whenever they want. Keir Starmer is strong enough to have it. When is an interesting question. I think it's unlikely to happen until after the local elections. You always reshuffle from a position of strength. That's a lesson Keir Starmer learnt the hard way. You know, he tried to reshuffle after the Hartlepool by election in 2021, and Angela Rayner ripped it up uh, and told him that no, she wouldn't be. Uh, she would. She, she and then she picked her. Picked a brief. Shadow cabinet office, which she's about to be whacked from. I so I hear, maybe not that brutally, but yeah, I think we will see a shadow cabinet reshuffle soon, and that's why you're seeing a burst of hyperactivity from Labour shadow, shadow cabinet ministers. You know, they've uh, they're very very keen. As Katie, I think you wrote the other week, right? They're constantly giving uh, powerpoints in shadow cabinet. Now they're so keen to show Keir Starmer and his aides that they are up to the job,
2: and it's also just an interesting reversal of what Ben Patrick mentions that reshuffle for Kistama that went so wrong because just very quickly Angela Rayner was holding the whole event hostage by you know refusing to move in the way they wanted to you had various briefings coming out and yet you now have a situation where Rishi Sunak, of course just recently reshuffled his cabinet but didn't sack a single person mm. which I think is a sign of how fragile relations are in the Tory party the idea you don't want to do anything which means it's all going to then blow up and yet at this point, Keir Starmer is all-powerful, largely because of the polls and just that sense that you get when you are ahead like that, which means he could do probably, I would say, most things mm-hmm. and get away Is there anything you think he couldn't do? Could he sack Rachel... As in, I don't think he has any intention to, because he clearly rates Rachel Reeves, but, I mean, is there anything he couldn't do at this point?
0: I think it'd be, he wouldn't want to sack Rachel yeah. Reeves, precisely because, actually, if he yeah. sacked Rachel Reeves, Rachel Reeves has a much bigger following and devoted following in the parliamentary party than Keir Starmer does. What couldn't he do? Look, I think if you're at the point where, as people now sort of openly discuss as something that's almost certainly going to happen, you can take your elected deputy's shadow cabinet brief off them, a brief they asked for at a point when they were stronger than you, you can basically do anything. The one thing I think he couldn't do, he would struggle to do, and that would reinvigorate Angela Rayner is if he in any way tried to rip up the formal link between Labour and the trade unions because look they still have seats on Labour's national executive they're still in the hold of the left some of them Angela Rayner is a politician who's risen up the Labour ranks through the union movement that is the one thing requires careful management but I don't think if Keir Starmer I don't think any Labour leader with the, the left still enmeshed in the structures of Labour's NEC and the unions can ever really touch that one with a barge pole they can carefully manage it and sort of you know rig the national executive as they're rigging everything else in the labour party
1: with uh with sort of real precision but i think that's the one thing he's not quite strong enough to do yet good advice for sakia there thank you patrick thank you katie and thank you for listening to coffee house shots